0: You know, in our country, there, there is a plethora of different organizations and associations. Did you know that there is an organization called the Self-Storage Association? <laughs> they exist to monitor and promote the development of self-storage. I'm pretty sure that I'm going to sleep better at night. Just knowing that they are on the job. And did you know that the self-storage industry has been one of the fastest growing sectors of the United States commercial real estate industry for the last 35 years? There are approximately, I know you're going to be fascinated with this, just sit tight. There are approximately 46,500 self-storage facilities in the United States. That was at the year end of uh, 2009. Approximately 58,000 self-storage facilities worldwide. Do the math. That means the U.S. has about 81%. Makes sense. Haven't seen a lot of those in Senegal or the jungles of Indonesia. Uh, Total self-storage rentable space in the U.S. is now 2.22 billion square feet. That figure represents more than 78 square miles of rentable self-storage space under roof. Or an area well more than three times the size of Manhattan. There is seven square feet of self-storage space for every man, woman, and child in this country. Thus, it is physically possible that every American could stand all at the same time under the total canopy of (laughs) self-storage. Does this strike you as absurd? Oh, my land! Now, you add to those statistics this information. According to the National Association of Home Builders, The average home size in the United States was 2,700 feet in 2009, up from 1,400 square feet in 1970. Now, add to that also that according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the average household size has declined from 3.1 people in 1970 to 2.6. So, if I'm reading these numbers correctly, that means that families have gotten smaller Houses have gotten larger and yet we still need 2 billion square feet of extra space to store our stuff. What's wrong with that picture? Did I ever tell you the story of when we moved out here from New England? The truck driver, who had been hauling for years, told us that we were the heaviest load he had ever moved. (laughs) Weighing in at approximately night pounds. That's about 2,715 pounds per person. Almost a ton and a half a piece of stuff. Some of you helped unload that truck. You know that's true. In his gospel, Luke tells the story of someone who came to Jesus and said, Master, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, Who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not exist in an abundance of possessions. Wow. As always, when Jesus was drawn into a situation he just immediately got right to the heart of the matter, which, as we've seen many times, is always a matter of the heart. And in our study these past few weeks of Applewood's DNA, isn't it ultimately always about the heart? Understanding what it is that God has done for us through what we have called again and again amazing and undeserved grace, what he has done for us in Christ... And then asking the Spirit of God to actually move that knowledge from here into our heart, that place of emotions, that place in Hebrew thought of of thinking and decision-making, the center of our being, moving the truth of what Christ has done for us into the center of our being so that it actually impacts the way we live. That's, That's what we've been after. And I've suggested to you that that these things that we identify as, as our DNA, they're, they're not really the, all that particular or, or unusual, should I say, uh, to, to churches. We've talked about two broad categories. We've talked about worship and what we were created for and what, what that's about. Well, all churches, local churches, are, are about worship. Or at least, you know, that's what God has built into them. And family. Churches, churches are all Family. But it's the way that we live out our understanding of those distinctives that, that perhaps make us unique. And remember that one of the truths all along that we have said, and I think it's so important to, to be mindful of this, is that the enemy is always looking, always looking for an opportunity. He's on the prowl, as Peter says, looking for an opportunity that brings division to the people of God in the local church and there are plenty of those divisions going on around us in this, in this country and in this world. He's looking for division. He's looking to divide so that the forces of darkness have the chance to mock God for His grace. You know, I just picture often, you know, the enemies of God, sort of like that scene from Job chapter 1 where the enemy comes into the presence of God and says, this guy only worships you because you've blessed his socks off. You know, and, and, I, and I think of that, that scenario played over time and time again, you know, in the spiritual realm that, that we are not privy to. The opportunity that the forces of the enemy and the powers of darkness take to mock God. Grace, what a stupid idea. You really think they're going to get it? Well, yeah. Yeah, by God's spirit, we will. We will. It's critical for us to remember. We are important to the enemy in so much that he can use us as pawns to mock the grace of God in our lives. We've said that early on in this series. We, We don't want to inflate our importance here, folks. You know, it's not like the enemy is concerned about us, fears us, worries about us, stays up late at night thinking about us. He doesn't. But when we are living out the reality of grace, I think the forces of darkness take notice because grace is outrageous. Grace is a ridiculous economical concept. Grace makes no sense at all. It is extravagant, it is wasteful. In some circles, the thought of of grace is ludicrous. And it's grace that makes us what we are. It's grace that drives us. And if there's a chance that the reputation of God can be muddied by our lives and our actions, not understanding grace and living as if we don't get it, you can be sure that the enemy is all over that. And so this morning's topic flows right out of where we have been in understanding this idea of grace and how it impacts us as family, how we, how we deal with one another, how we are patient with one another, uh, how we deal with one another in terms of the sin that we all wrestle with. Those topics where we've been the last couple of weeks. This morning, in a word, I want to talk about giving. Giving. It's a pretty grace-filled concept. You know... If you've been around Applewood for any amount of time, you know we don't, we just don't talk about money much at Applewood. Um, you know, we don't pass the offering plate, we don't talk a whole lot about it. We really believe that God is our provider and we strive to live in a way that is honoring to Him and, and we trust Him to provide. And And He's been so gracious and so faithful to us in so many ways and I am I am just amazed at times of, of how we seem as a congregation to be pretty clear on the importance of giving. We, we are a giving congregation. For that, I just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you that, that this significant part of our lives is, is touched by you. As God gives, because he, out of his grace he gives, we give. Grace moves us to give. It's, it's what I call the natural flow of grace. God gives to us and it flows out of us into the lives of others. I think that's the design. Over the years, in our church lives, those of us who've been around the church for a number of years, how many of you have heard the verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver? Raise your hand if you've heard that verse. Of course you have. God loves a cheerful giver. It can be translated hilarious. God loves it when people are just hilariously giving. You know, the world looks at that and goes, that is weird. But do we know why it is that God loves a cheerful giver? And, and, and does it mean that God doesn't love those who aren't giving cheerfully? God loves a cheerful giver. When God's people give cheerfully, they're being like Him. When the kids are giving cheerfully, they're being like the Father. They're demonstrating that they get it. And here's where this particular sermon tying into this series of, you know, as things change in our lives here, we need to keep certain things on the radar. Because again, the enemy is on the prowl. He he will he will tempt us. We need to expect that. And as we've said from the beginning of this series, that the, the changes that we're making. In the building alone our fertile soil in which he will sow seeds of doubt and financial concern that will that could lead us away from generous and cheerful giving. I read the story of a pastor who recalls being stopped by an angry church member one morning complaining that the church had purchased five new brooms, an expenditure that he thought was completely unnecessary. So the pastor, being surprised at this guy's reaction, he, he mentioned it to the church treasurer, who said, oh, it's understandable. How would you feel if you saw everything you gave in the past year tied up in five brooms? Cheerful and generous giving behooves a people of grace, does it not? All right. We're going to read this morning probably a familiar text for many of us, Matthew uh, chapter 6. We're going to read uh, verses 19 to 33, and, and again, it's the teaching of Jesus that once again I think gets right at the matter of, of the heart. So let's stand together and let's read the scriptures. We're going to read it in uh, kind of an antiphonal way. Let's, uh, let's make congregation number one, you folks over here on the north, congregation number two over here on the south, and uh, let's begin together. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Number one, the eyes, the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Turn to someone nearby and ask them this question What is the difference between stewardship and selfishness? I didn't say this was going to be a fun sermon. <laughs> Ask your neighbor. What's the difference between stewardship and selfishness? What do you think? Okay, we're ready. Rick, you got a look on your face. Dare I ask? Ellen, what did Rick say? <laughs> Okay. is yeah, good, it's not right. All right. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Good thought. Good perspective. What else? Any other thoughts? John. Okay. possessive attitude of taking on responsibility for the end user. Okay. Okay. Good, John. Thanks. Nat. Oh, that is such a good point. Would you like to come and preach my sermon? That was very good, Nat. <laughs> What's that? Oh yeah, managing it the way that God would have you use it. I, I would say it according to His values or kingdom values. Um, yeah, Diane. Okay. Mmm. Good, good, good. Yeah. And, and so we could add to that, requires wisdom, which requires thinking and, and prayer and, and wrestling, which is where I hope we'll, we'll get to at the end of this, this time together. Um, I, you may not agree with this, <clears throat> but I, I think that far too often in the life of the local church, stewardship and, and selfishness are not that different. We, we, we mean for them to be. We think that they are. And in fact I would just be maybe outrageous enough to say that sometimes stewardship not intentionally so stewardship becomes just another name for selfishness. Let me explain that. Churches talk about stewardship from the perspective that that God is the one who gives us Everything. We, we understand that. I mean, theologically, we are on pretty orthodox ground. If we affirm the idea that, that God is the giver of everything that we have, starting with the very breath that we take every day to everything that is a part of our lives, we understand that that He is the giver of that. So we then become stewards. Steward is just an old word for manager. We become managers of God's property, and possessions. That which he has given to us, we manage. And so we're not the creator of it. We are not the end user of it. We are the managers of that. That's biblical truth. The problem with stewardship, as it is often lived out in the church, is that too often, it becomes an excuse to protect and preserve and cling to things that we think are valuable. And from a cultural perspective, from the world's perspective, they do have value. But when that happens, and it can be oh so subtle in the life of a congregation, when that happens, the word stewardship, I think, can simply become a cover-up for what is in fact selfishness. Allow me to read for you a story that I know I've read to you some years in the past, but I know of no other story that says this so well and the dynamics that we wrestle with when it comes to understanding stewardship, use of our stuff, giving of our, our stuff, our resources, our money. Bob Lupton, the inner city missionary in Atlanta for many years, talks about Mrs. Smith. She's 66, she's mildly retarded, she's dangerously overweight, she's twice a grandmother and she's a devout member of our church she lives with four generations of extended family in an overcrowded, dilapidated house but her buoyant spirit is undaunted she says, you're my buddy and she says that with kind of a broad, snaggle-toothed grin I pray for you every day and then she gives me a long bear hug she wants to sit close beside me in every church service and although the smell of stale sweat and excrement is often somewhat nauseating she makes me feel a little special Her internal plumbing doesn't work as well as it used to, and she leaves tobacco smears when she kisses my cheek. But I am pleased to have Mrs. Smith by my side. She often hints, sometimes very blatantly, that she would like to come home with us for a visit. Nothing would delight her more than to have Sunday dinner with my family. Ah, but there is a conflict. It has to do with the values that Peggy and I have learned from childhood. We believe that good stewardship means taking care of our belongings. Treating them with respect and getting long service from them. Our boys know that they are not to track in mud on the carpet or sit on the furniture with dirty clothes. To invite Mrs. Smith into our home means we will have filth and stench soil our couch. There will be stubborn offensive odors in our living room. My greatest fear is that she will want to sit in my new corduroy recliner. I wouldn't want to be rude and cover it with plastic to protect it from urine stains, but I know it would never be the same Again. Unknowingly, Mrs. Smith is forcing a conflict of clashing values upon me. Preserve and maintain, conserve and protect. They are the words of an ethic that has served us well. Over time, these values have subtly filtered into our theology. It is increasingly difficult to separate the values of capitalism from the values of the kingdom. Stewardship has become confused. With insurance coverage, with certificates of deposit, and protective coverings for our stained glass. It is an offering, a tithe dropped into a plate to be used on ourselves and our buildings. Somewhere on the way to becoming rich, we picked up the idea that preserving our property is preferable to expending it for people. Why should it be so difficult to decide which is wiser to open the church for the homeless? To rest or to install an electronic alarm system to preserve its beauty? Why should it be such a struggle to decide which is more godly? To welcome Mrs. Smith into my home and my corduroy recliner? Or to reserve the homey aroma of my sanctuary and get extra years of service from my furniture? Is this not precisely the issue of serving man or God? How ingenious of our American version of Christianity to make them both one and the same. Well... We did finally invite Mrs. Smith to have Sunday dinner in our home. And she did just as I feared she would. She went straight for my corduroy recliner. And it never has been the same. In fact, Mrs. Smith even joined a Bible study in our home the next week. Every Wednesday, she headed right to my chair. She even referred to it as her chair. My friends, here's the truth. If everything that we have is from God and we affirm that and I know that we do, then that means that we are to treat God's property in the way that he would treat his property. As as managers, we are acting on his behalf, right? If it's his property, we treat it in the way that, that that he wants us to with his values, kingdom values, And what is the example that we see in God? Well, verse that we've all heard forever is that God so loved the world that He gave. What did He give? Gave His most precious commodity. God is not cheap. He's a giver. He's a generous giver. He is an extravagant. Some would say He is a wasteful giver. To waste grace on a lot of us, some would say, is awfully extravagant god never lacks for anything he's the creator of all things he never runs out of what he needs because he can always make more you know the 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 whole supply and demand thing is just not even an issue for our god And so it's out of the character of our God that we take our cue on how to live our lives as managers of His stuff. It's on the basis of that truth that He expects us to live a certain way. We preserve and we protect because we assign value to the wrong things. So this, this begs the question of us, and again, a, a question for us right where we're at now and, and as we continue this move into the future, how are we modeling God's unlimited economy in our personal lives? And then that, of course, impacts the character or the personality of Applewood. Whether or not we are selfish or generous as individuals creates the corporate character of the church. And so I I want us to take two truths away from this passage this morning. They're not deeply profound. In fact, we know them, we've heard them often. It's important to be reminded of them because there's that fine line between stewardship and selfishness. First truth is this we will serve. Either God or money. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. He did not offer another option because there is no other option. We will serve one or the other. To store up treasure on earth is to value the wrong things. It is to to give ourselves to gathering temporal and... And fading stuff, corruptible stuff, stuff that is not going to last, stuff that is not valuable in the eyes of God. Tell me, what is valuable in the eyes of God? Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. What is valuable in the eyes of God? <laughs> I'll give you a clue. Think of Jesus on the cross. Tell me, what is valuable in the eyes of God? People. Always. Always, always, always. God is not impressed by any of our stuff because it's His stuff. God values people. God values people. If you've ever wondered... What Jesus means when he talks about treasures in heaven, there's your answer. Heaven is not going to be populated with with nice homes and cars and advanced degrees and resort memberships and savings accounts. It just isn't going to be. It's going to be populated with people. So how are we doing with the management of God's stuff in our personal lives in order to invest it in what is most important to him because that will become a reflection of what we as a church model and characterize before our world. I once heard a guy say, you know, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And that's exactly right. To use the stuff, the earthly treasures, to invest in heavenly treasures makes sense in the economy of God. And so we must constantly ask ourselves, what is the most important thing in my life? What do I stand for? What do I give myself to? And because our hearts are incredibly deceitful, you know, this is a great question to, to ask someone who knows you well, who will be honest with you. So what do you think is the most important thing in my life? What do I give myself to if, if the answer is anything else than people? Knowing and loving people and using my money and my possessions in a way that demonstrates that, then I think we have a heart problem according to Jesus. And this is a command from Jesus. This is not a suggestion or a good idea. It is so important that we come back to this again and again and again as congregation, as followers of Jesus. When Jesus speaks of the eyes being a lamp to the body, alluding the idea of of coveting, of, of looking at things, looking at stuff that someone else has, or just looking at things out there in the marketplace and wanting it, working for it. Do we spend our lives and our energy striving after the stuff that the world deems valuable? Or do we see people being the greatest value? People, the eternal treasures that God wants us to give ourselves to investing in and storing up. Are we being obedient to the command of Jesus? Or are we fooling ourselves, storing up earthly treasures and thinking that we are serving God? It can be really subtle. Tim Keller tells a story about doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins. He says... Uh, at a uh, a men's breakfast. And he said, my my wife Kathy told me, she said, I'll bet the week that you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride. But but (laughs) nobody thinks, nobody thinks they're greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to our hearts. Ask someone who knows you well and tell them to be honest. The second truth that we take from this text, Jesus says not to worry about your life. What you will eat and drink, Clothing. You might think of this as as the basic necessities. I've always sort of wondered at at the birds in that passage. You know, the the birds aren't worrying about what is they're going to eat or wear. They're just being birds. You know, the flowers. You know, they don't wake up in the morning and think, gee, what will I wear today? They just are. They're flowers. Jesus' point is that the people of God don't give themselves to those concerns because they're the people of God. They just are. And they walk in the confidence and the knowledge of God's provision. Jesus says, don't worry. Father's got it covered. interesting thing about worry is that it accomplishes nothing. Unless, you know, you like high blood pressure and other heart-related problems, if that's your goal, then go for it. Worry doesn't accomplish anything. Jesus calls us to to trust. Again, this is another command. It's it's not an accident that it flows right out of Jesus' teaching about not pursuing earthly treasures. We quickly and easily confuse what are the necessities with, with more. I think it's easy to evaluate our standards of living to, to, excuse me, to elevate our standards of living because we have pursued earthly treasures and, and we, we allow ourselves to cross that line. And that line is, is different for, for, for different people. But we cross that line where treasure becomes necessity. We worry about how we will keep that treasure in our lives. We, we have to give lots of time to maintenance and care, concern. Here's an outrageous thought for you. Have you ever wondered if the stress of worry could be alleviated by making ourselves accountable to others in the way that we spend our money. And there's a hush in the room. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? In the Christian life we believe in togetherness. We do everything together. We, we eat together, we pray together, we study together, we rake leaves together, we work together, Except we don't struggle with sin together and we don't talk about money together. Probably two of the greatest struggles in the Christian life. And the enemy has duped us into thinking, you can handle this on your own. I'm not so sure. The very place where we could benefit greatly from group thinking and encouragement and accountability is where the enemy has fooled us. Fooled us to deal with it alone. Verse 32 of our text this morning ought to trouble us more than any other statement in the passage. Jesus said the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. That's not a compliment. The word pagan in Jesus' day was a harsh word. The Jew used it to describe people who did not know God. And from the perspective of some Jews, a pagan was despicable. You hear what Jesus is doing here? Jesus doesn't think the pagans are despicable, but he's using a word that the Jews use to describe despicable people. To say, you become one when you worry about this stuff. You become one when you give your life to the pursuit of earthly treasures. You become one when you don't give yourself to the values of the kingdom of God and live as if you really understand grace freely given and grace freely given. Sort of a summary statement of the entire text. When God's people give in to the pursuit and the storing up of earthly stuff, and they find their lives characterized by worry and relationship to the managing of that stuff, they're acting like people who do not know God, have no relationship with Him. Praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to lead us as we wrap up this morning love this quote by C.K. Chesterton. He once said, It is the highest and holiest of the paradoxes that the one who really knows they cannot pay their debt, they're the ones that will be forever paying it. They will always be throwing things away into a bottomless pit of unfathomable thanks. That is such a cool way. To see the treasures of this world. The things that, that call to our hearts. They are usable. They are expendable. In fact, I think God would encourage and delight in His people expending their stuff for the sake of His kingdom. And the eternal heavenly treasures of people who need to know Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let me just close with what I've said before. You know, we are we're in days where these things need to be on our radar screens. If if we're if we're not wrestling with this kind of stuff all the time, there's a chance that maybe we're already blindsided. We're not seeing everything that we have as God's possession to be used for His glory, not on ourselves, but for the sake of others. And I know it raises a gazillion questions. Good. If the questions are raised, we're wrestling with the right stuff, and that's what we need to be doing. As the days come, we're going to have a brand new building out there. We're going to have a brand new kitchen. We're going to have brand new bathrooms. (laughs) how will we feel about those brand new parts of the building versus the not so brand new parts of the building? Why is it that I like my wife's car so much better than my car? (laughs) My car does the same thing. It's just not as fast. I have to be patient. it's, It's woven into us. I throw this out so that we wrestle, that we wrestle, that we not forget that the enemy is looking for every opportunity to mock the character and the goodness of our God by getting us to forget that grace is freely given so that grace will be freely given. Amen? Amen. Amen.